called Alberton by today's guest, Michael Aranda. You'll hear my, um, in the uh, conversation with Michael, how I don't really know who he is when I sit down for this interview. I, I think I mentioned that I was going to be in Missoula, Montana, and someone on Twitter was like, oh, you should interview Michael Aranda. And I looked him up and he seemed like an interesting guy and he was willing to meet and we did. And uh, so I knew yeah, I'd read something on Wikipedia about him or something. But, um, you know, he was just one of these guys who was uh, out there in the universe that I'd never heard of. And uh, after this conversation, I have to say I was very impressed with the guy. He's you ever meet somebody and it's like. I don't know. It's it's like they're just firing on all cylinders. You know, they're just this guy, Michael, he's smart. He's good looking. He's creative. He's very thoughtful. He's um, he just really seems to have it together. I don't know. Maybe maybe he's uh, it's all an act. Maybe he's a total mess inside, but I don't think so. I think he's uh I think he's got it figured out pretty well. And he's a young fucker too. He's 31, I think he said. I think yeah, we talked, we spent some time there talking about uh, being a millennial and what you know what that means having grown up with the internet and all that. Um anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I I really enjoyed hanging out with him. Uh we were in a studio where he records one of several shows he does. I think one of the better known ones is uh what I'm what I'm up to right now or what I'm doing right now, I think it's called what I'm doing right now. Anyway, he's a musician. He's a filmmaker. He uh, hosts various uh, shows on YouTube. He's a vlogger. He's a very interesting guy and um, surprisingly relaxed for somebody who's doing all that stuff. Um, so hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with him. Uh, in the meantime, let me read you a little something I came across. This was uh, a Craigslist ad posted in the San Francisco area um, prior to the eclipse. Uh, you heard me talk about having been at the eclipse in Oregon. And this, uh, this guy posted this ad. I'll just read it to you straight up. I am 40 years of age, Caucasian, Caucasian male from Europe. My heritage is strong and pure. My looks, instincts, knowledge, and strength are 100% lethal. I am looking for a worthy female with strong genes, beauty, and smarts to experience the, total, the totality eclipse in Oregon. Exact place not set. If we have chemistry, I would like for us to make love while the eclipse is happening. When totality occurs, we will have simultaneous orgasms and conceive a child who will be on the next level of human evolution. We will make love with my penis directed toward the sun. Our cosmic orgasmic energy will be aligned with the planets. In a brief moment of ecstasy, we will understand everything and together create a new universe full of love. You must like cats. Drugs are okay. I don't know if he found a date. I'm kind of thinking maybe he didn't because I haven't noticed that a new universe full of love was created that day. Uh, or maybe it's just a universe that we weren't invited to. But I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make love with my penis 
directed toward the sun at all times from now on, I think. It's kind of like a Mecca thing, you know, you pray toward Mecca. I'm, I'm always going to fuck toward the sun. I'm just, I just want you ladies out there to know that, especially you ladies uh, who have, um, what does he say here? Good genes, strong genes, beauty, and smarts. You worthy females, watch out for the sun-directed penis. That's all I can say. All right. Uh, This is the part of the podcast where I'm not going to read an ad. I'm not going to say first a word from our sponsor. I'm not going to say, hey, do you have a website? (laughs) No, I'm not going to say any of that shit. I'm not going to say, you got to get some of this underwear or... Nothing. I'm not going to say that shit. And you know why? I'm just going to say one word. Patreon. Patreon, bitches. This is a refuge. This is uh, like um, the equivalent of a national park, except you have to pay to get into national park. So it's not really a national park. This is the equivalent of this place I, I went to in Guatemala years and years ago, right after T-Call, those of you who have been following my Toma stories. Uh, I, I think I told the story about getting stung by the scorpion while tripping at Tikal and all that. So after that, I went to this place that was a little south of Tikal. It was a beautiful place. My God, the couple who lived there had um, turned the chicken coops into rooms the travelers could stay in and I'll tell that story sometime if I have. Maybe I maybe I included a description of that place in the whole T-Call thing because that's where I was when I realized that I had hepatitis. And, um, and then some really crazy shit happened to the couple that ran the place uh, that I found out about a few years later. The guy was killed by the military. It was horrible. Anyway, anyway, the point, fuck the point, was that they didn't, they had a deal where it's like, look, you st- every night you spend here, it's five bucks. And, you know, if you have dinner, it's three bucks and, uh, you know, beers are 80 cents each and whatever. Um, but the way they handled it was you ju- there was a, a book. And when you got there, they'd start a new page for you. And you kept track how many nights you're there. You kept track how many dinners you've had, how many beers you've had, how much you've, you know, whatever. And then. When you decided to leave, you would just go add stuff up and stuff some money in a coffee can, and that was it. Nobody looked over your shoulder. Nobody checked to make sure that you were paying for what you'd use. Nobody counted how many beers you took. It was just a basically, you know, trust system. So anyway, that that's what I would try to do with the podcast. If if I mean, there it would have been really bad for people to be freeloading. Um, and I'm sure some people did. But here it's fine if you freeload. In other words, if you don't have a credit card, don't get a fucking credit card to send me money. Hell no. Um, and if you don't, if you're living close to the to the bone, don't sweat it. But if you're rolling in cash, if you're going to Starbucks and getting frappuccinos every day, then, you know, you might want to consider pitching in to support the podcast especially if you're hearing my voice right now that means that you're you're part of this community so not guilt tripping anyone i'm just saying you know help us keep the lights on uh 
And uh, that's it. That's all I'm going to say. Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not all I'm going to say. I'm also going to say, if you haven't yet ordered your copy or copies of Tangentially Reading, get on that. Those of you who have credit cards, uh, just go to, uh, you, you'll see the ad for Tangentially Reading on my website, or you can Google Tangentially Reading and it'll take you to the website where you can pre-order a copy or 20 copies of Tangentially Reading, the book that features conversations with Duncan and Joe and Mary Roach and Andrew Weil and Neil Strauss and uh, Sierra Lynch, the Humiliatrix, and uh, a whole bunch of other people. My cousin, Charlie, who was like a super smart 11-year-old at the time. He's now 14 and he's like 6'3", 240. Jesus Christ. What are they feeding kids these days? Um, yeah, anyway, we're really proud of that. As I've said on previous episodes, it's a community-based project. People are from the podcast community are proofreading it right now. Uh, other people, Adam McDade did the art. Fantastic art. Check him out, Adam McDade. He's a very good artist. Um, the cover, the layout, the design, the, the choice of what passages are included. All that stuff was done by people who listen to the podcast, not by me. You know, if, it, if, it, if I had to do it, I'd be selling T-shirts for the book, but the book would be years in the future. <laughs> Uh, all right. My latest distraction from things I should be doing. That, that's, that should be on my tombstone. I'm not going to have a tombstone, but if I were going to have a tombstone, it would say something about things I should have been doing, but having too much fun. Anyway, uh, tomorrow I'm driving to Moab, Utah, where uh, I'll be with some friends in the desert for a week or so. Um, Tom from Bend, Oregon, good friend who I met through the podcast, as I seem to everyone. I mean, without this fucking podcast, they wouldn't have any friends. It's incredible. Um, anyway, Tom uh, has spent a lot of time in that part of the world, and he offered to show me and some friends around. So we ended, we had a group of nine or 10 people who were all going to meet out there. And in the last 24 hours, about half of them have fallen through the cracks for various reasons. Uh, dying grandmothers, uh, last minute jobs, uh, last minute surf commitments, um, various things have come up. So it looks like there are only going to be five or six of us out there. But in any case, we're going to Moab which is a place uh, I've driven through there, but I haven't really spent much time there. And uh, I've always wanted to since reading Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey way back in the early 80s. Great book. Great book. If you like cantankerous, funny, hyper-intelligent writing, uh, Edward Abbey's uh, a pretty good choice. Not Albie. There was a famous playwright named Edward Albie. This is Edward Abbey, and the book I'm recommending is called Desert Solitaire. It's a beautiful collection of essays about culture, about the desert, about ecology, about history, about masculinity. Just, it's one of these books that uh, was published uh, on a lark, really. It was put out by a very small publisher, I think, initial print run of 
500 or a thousand copies or something back in the 70s and uh yeah incredibly the book uh just it just it was a slow burn uh word of mouth people told each other about it and it's still in print today it's probably sold i don't know if it's sold a million copies or more but it's uh it's one of those books that you just hear about if you're a traveler if if you're a hiker an environmentalist um that's a book you've probably heard about. Highly recommended. Anyway, since reading that, uh, I've always wanted to go to Moab because that's the area that he talks about, the Red Rocks, Four Corners part of the country. Um, but like so many things, you know, it, it's one thing to just go there and hang around, but it's some it's totally different to go there with someone who knows and loves the area. So I'm taking advantage of that opportunity and the chance to hang out with some friends. So uh that's where I'll be for the next week. If you're in the Moab area and you want to say hi, I think we'll be meeting for beers in town on Monday the 6th. Uh, yeah, uh, which is today. <laughs> yeah, because this actually, you know what? I'll release this. Uh, I'll release this right away. I'll release this on Friday. So if you happen to be in the Moab area, you'll have a little bit of a notice. Uh, you get in touch through the website, chrisryanphd.com. There's a contact page. And um, yeah, maybe join us for a beer. Anyway, hope you're well wherever you are. This is uh, Michael Aranda, really cool guy. Look him up on YouTube. You'll see him all over the place. Um, and we talk about a couple of songs in our conversation. We talk about the musical qualities sorry, the magical qualities of music. So I'm going to play you out with one of the songs that we talk about. It's called Strawberry Letter 23. It's a very, for me, it's a very mystical and evocative song. I think I talk about why in our conversation. Uh, and there are two versions. I'm going to play the original, which is by Shuggy Otis. And then uh, I'll cut into the conversation and play the tune that uh, I describe hearing that night in Philadelphia long, long ago. And and then I'll play, uh, at the end of the conversation, I'll play a tune called Waiting for the End by Linkin Park, which Michael mentions. So, a little bit of music in this episode. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, and I will catch you down the road. Baby, I am free. 
get that recording. All right. Here I am in a log cabin in Missoula, Montana. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Michael Aranda, is that That's how you correct. pronounce it? Yep. All right, cool. This is, this is um, an interesting sort of hybrid podcast because I have podcasts with people who are prominent sometimes. Sometimes I have podcasts with people who I just met, you know, the auto mechanic who was yeah. changing my brakes, you know, who turns out to be an interesting guy. Um, so I go into them completely blind, but you're this hybrid because you're quite prominent, but I have no idea who you are. So it's a very interesting... I don't know about quite prominent. <laughs> I generally refer to myself as a C-list internet celebrity. C-list internet yeah. celebrity. Well, you know, are you a millennial? Somebody said like, hey, that, he'll be like the voice of the millennials. Uh, what are millennials? I don't know. Maybe we can start there. What's yeah. a millennial? What is a millennial? Is it someone who drinks power drinks instead of coffee i'm gonna get my coffee by the way zero sugar monster energy drink here zero sugar um this podcast brought to you by <laughs> i guess if we're defining millennial as somebody who grew up using the internet right i do fall into that category how old are you I am 31. 31. Uh, and my both of my parents were very into uh, technology and video games and right. stuff like that. So growing up, I was introduced to that culture pretty early. Uh, and then my aunt especially, um, she was always on the internet in like the very early days of the internet and mm. would show me like how AOL keywords worked and, right. and stuff like that. So so was porn uh, something you found early on? <laughs> um, that was, I think I was in junior high. Yeah. And it was, actually I specifically remember that Zelda.com was a porn site when I first started using the internet. Um, but I was just looking for Legend of Zelda related content, which is a video game. Innocent. Just an um, innocent search. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember it sort of circulating around school. Uh, kids would, you know, nudge, nudge. Whitehouse.com is a porn site. Right, um, right. But most of my early exposure to porn came from services like, uh, not Napster specifically, but similar things like Kazaa mm. and Morpheus, which right. were both. Uh, platforms for distributing files. Right. So, you know, right. I would be looking for music and also, like, boobs. Right. And what do you think about, uh, you know, as someone who's grown up with that, what do, you, uh, what do you think about how that has affected, if at all, um, sexual behavior or expectations or... It's a little early in the morning to be getting into this, maybe. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people ask me that all the time. And, I, I mean, I grew up, I was in my 30s before the Internet really started happening, mm -hmm. you know. So, for me, it was Playboy magazines and stuff. I don't know. I, I think that there are probably much smarter people than me who study that and yeah. would have real answers. So, like, the best hypothesis that I can give uh, is that having exposure to what are essentially fantasies like most of porn is, is just it's fantasy stuff right um i could see how that might give people a skewed idea especially if you're watching porn before you've 
had any sort of real relationship with right. any human being. Like, right. it, it could get into your head that this is how it works. Um, and I think just like you have people who can watch violent films and keep it in their head that this is a, a fantasy that I'm watching, this isn't real life, versus people who might watch something like that and come to espouse the kind of thing that they are yeah. watching. Uh, I imagine it's the same with, with porn. Some people, yeah. like I feel my relationship with porn is that it's very easy for me to divorce what I'm seeing from the reality that I live in and that my relationships live in. Um, but everybody's different. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an unresolved question. We still haven't even resolved whether watching violence on TV promotes violent behavior. You know, it seems like that sort of thing should be pretty easy to work out. But for some reason, either the research isn't being done or it is being done and it's being ignored or... I know that there's, especially as it relates to millennials, uh, talks about does video game violence right. uh, correlate to things like Columbine happening. Yeah. Um, and I was watching a little bit of your interview with Peter Joseph last oh, night, right. uh, and you guys talked about the bubbles in which people live. Like if, mm -hmm. if you're liberal, your Facebook and all that, it's really easy to, to feel like you're you're surrounded with just liberal ideals, yeah. and same if you're a conservative. So because I'm in more of a liberal bubble, the stuff that I see tells me that, well, research says that video games don't cause violence or whatever, but like, hmm. I don't know. Yeah, interesting that the Pentagon is using them for training purposes, though, mm -hmm. you know. So I don't know. That, that's all very complicated stuff. You say you live in a liberal bubble. Why are you in Missoula? What's happening? How do you end well, up in Missoula specifically is a very, is a very blue dot in an bubble. otherwise yeah. very red state. Yeah. I don't know if very red is, is fair. Um, it seems to be changing. Uh, there's a pretty liberal senator here. Isn't there a tester? Is that? Is I liberal? haven't lived here too long. I've been here for five years. Mm. Um, and the way it's been explained to me is that uh, Montana has a history of electing um, Democratic state officials, right? But voting red when it comes to the presidential election. Huh. I I don't know. Yeah. I've only experienced, um, I guess, two elections here. Right. Um, and so what what brought you to Missoula? You grew up in Southern California. I grew up in right? Southern California, yeah. a town called Chino Hills, uh -huh. um, and then. After I graduated from high school, I went to film school in Ventura, California, at a now defunct film school called the Brooks Institute. They just shut their doors last year. Um, and then I lived in Diamond Bar, California for a while, and then I lived in London for a while. And London, then I England. Yeah, I accidentally lived in Paris for two months. Accidentally. Um, you got robbed? <laughs> we took a little vacation or holiday to Paris. And then when I tried to get back into England, where my stuff still was, the border patrol was like, no, can't come in. Um, it's kind of a long, complicated story, but the crux of it is that the first time I flew into England, I didn't have a return flight out. Right. So they took me into one of the scary interrogation rooms. Right. And they were like, well, are you trying to move here? And I was like, no, I just, you know, I know that I'm allowed to stay for up to six months. So I was like, I'll just feel it out as I'm here. And they were like, no, 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 no. 
Um, but as a result, they had like a, a case file typed up on me. The, on the, the interview had, yeah. they, they typed up notes in the interview. Um, and then when I was trying to get back into England, they were able to pull up everything I had said in that previous interview. And it, by that time, I had been in England for, I think, three or four months. Um, and they were like, hey, when you came in here, you said, I don't know, maybe six weeks. And it's been four months. So you lied. You can't come back in. <laughs> um, come on. Despite the fact that on my passport, when they stamped it, when I came in the first time, it said, leave to enter four, and there was a blank space, and the person hand-wrote six months. Right. So in my mind, I was like, oh, cool, I asked for six weeks, they gave me six months. Right. It's like a, a parent being like, here, Johnny, have $10, and then getting right. mad when they spend the, the, the full 10 instead of the five that they asked for. Or so, yeah, I don't know. It yeah. just was a silly situation, but as a result, I was stuck in Paris for a little bit, and I just I tweeted, uh, hey, I'm stuck in Paris, and then a bunch of people were like, hey, I live in Paris, come stay with me. So I stayed with this really nice family for two months there, um, and I guess the moral of the story is don't get stranded in a foreign country without at least 50,000 followers on Twitter. <laughs> Back to the C-list celebrity yeah. thing, yeah. Well, I, I'm experiencing that myself right now. I was just up in... Uh, Columbia Falls, uh, Montana, I was coming in from Idaho and I tweeted, hey, uh, is there any place I should see in Glacier, you know, because I'm going to mm. go to Glacier. And a guy was like, hey, I live right near the entrance to Glacier, you know, come by, you can put your van in my driveway, take a shower. So I went in there and he and his wife and his buddy Connor and his brother and they have this whole family living. We floated down the river and yeah. ended up spending a couple days there. It was fantastic. I don't know if two months would have been uh, comfortable, but a couple days, you know. <laughs> hey, guys, yeah. I'm going to be here for a few months. It ended up being, you know, if I think back over my life so far, uh, there's moments or, or periods that are like, that was really good. That mm. was really happy. And so the time that I spend in Paris is definitely one of the pinnacles it's of funny. my existence so far. And it's, it's so many things in life. Uh, happened like I lived in Barcelona for 25 years based there right mm -hmm. and it all happened because I got robbed my first night in Barcelona mm. I was on my way somewhere else some guy robbed me got my passport I had to wait for a new one in the time I was waiting for the new one I met someone who offered me a job and someone else offered me a place to stay I met some women and it was like oh, I'll hang out for a couple of months you know yeah 25 years later like <laughs> I'm in an apartment there most of my friends are there it's yeah. like yeah life you don't know. It's, the lesson there is something bad happens, with air yeah. quotes. Maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, See how the, it plays out. The day out. that I got denied entry, because uh, the, the, the train station going back into England, where they, they do the border check in Paris, so like I, right. I couldn't even get on the train. But when that happened, uh, I just sat down at a table, and I, I cried for 30 seconds or something. Mm. I was like, I, I'm here by myself. I don't know French. Right. Uh, what do I do? Right. Um, but in that moment, I had no idea that I was about to embark on yeah. this really amazing development in my life. Yeah, yeah, um, that's great. It's funny you mentioned Barcelona because just yesterday I was opening up a package that someone sent to my PO box because. Um, the people who watch my videos online know that I have a, a thing for bacon. I'm a big fan of bacon. Mm. Uh, and I guess they were visiting Barcelona or something, and they found a mug that says, I heart BCN, which I guess is Barcelona. supposed to be Barcelona. <laughs> but they, when yeah. they saw it, they thought it was bacon, so they sent it to me. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> BCN, huh? 
Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so you're a musician. I looked at your. I don't know. I, I was driving with a friend. She mm. pulled up. I think it was your Wikipedia page or something. Mm -hmm. You play like 15 instruments. Uh, not well. Like the xylophone um, and karimba. I, and I like, would say that I I play <laughs> most I play most instruments well enough that it will impress people who don't play those instruments. Right. But people who have spent their life mastering <laughs> oh, guitar, well. for example, will find my skills to be very amateur. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's kind of like Keith Richards isn't going to be blown away by no, your no, riffing. No, no, no. Yeah, um, fair enough. But you know, people who who learn a couple languages find it easier to pick up more languages at that right. point. Um, and I was lucky enough that my mom was a, a recording artist growing up, so I was always exposed to all of her recording equipment and mm. music stuff. I picked it up pretty naturally. Um, so by the time I was out of high school, I had already played. You know, six or so instruments right. and it's just after you learn how to play the trumpet playing any brass instrument is not that hard they're all mm. fairly similar after right. you learn how to play a reed instrument they're all fairly similar so. and do a lot of rhythm stuff yeah i i people who work here can tell you that i spend a lot of my life just kind of yeah. tapping on stuff well i noticed my phone went off and you immediately went into like a, got into the groove <laughs> Yeah. And it wasn't even a good groove. It was just the you know standard Hawaii groove or whatever the hell it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I normally have that all programmed, but I had to do like a hard reset recently, mm. and so everything's lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have uh, Steely Dan is my normal ringtone. You yeah. don't know Steely Dan, do you? I've heard the name. I yeah. I couldn't <laughs> be like, oh, that song. <laughs> but yeah, the Steely Dan were an interesting band, but they're definitely a 70s band. Mm -hmm. There's just two guys and perfectionists. They never went on tour because they didn't like the imperfections that happened on stage. Mm -hmm. This was back when you could make a living not going on tour. And studio musicians, like the best studio musicians. So yeah. they put together a new band for each record. And uh, yeah, they're a really interesting band. That reminds me of when I was younger, because you know how when bands go on tour and they play their songs, they often play variations of their songs, right. or they'll do a medley, or yeah. play a really hard song as like an acoustic stripped down version and all that. Yeah. And that used to bother me a lot. I was like, no, mm. you recorded this version of the song, play that version of the song. Mm. Um, and I, I like to think about the way that I feel now and compare it to when I was right. a younger dude, and that is one of the ways that I've You've I, changed. I've changed. I very much appreciate it when artists uh, do a new iteration on something that they've done before. Yeah, me too. It, it's like it's like looking at a sculpture from a different angle. Yeah, uh, and also to take it a, a step further, I really love it when someone does a cover version of a song that exposes elements of the songs that the song that the original does doesn't seem to contain mm -hmm. my favorite example of that is uh the outcast song hey ya mm -hmm. you know that tune yeah so you listen to the original and it's super upbeat right mm -hmm. it's a shake it like a polaroid picture out all everybody's dancing listen to the have you ever really listened to the lyrics it's incredibly sad i've, I've heard the the sort of stripped down Oh, you heard? Version of that. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Obadiah Parker. I think so. Yeah, yeah, he does the acoustic. Mm -hmm. And he really exposes the sadness of the song because the song's about dysfunctional relationships. That's That also reminds me of that song, uh, Mad World, um, mm. that was covered by Gary Jules for the movie Donnie Darko. Mm, uh, right. It was a Tears for Fears song. Right. Um, 
and the Gary Jules version is just so heart-wrenching. Yeah. There's like four songs in existence that when I listen to move me, yeah. and that is that really? cover version is one of them. What are the others? Um, you know the Holy Night Christmas song? Yeah. Whenever, it depends on who's singing it, but whenever it gets to the part where it's fall on your knees, that part just like mm, huh. hits me right in the chest. Wow. I'm not particularly religious or anything, but there's just something about that moment in that song that is it's just huge. Yeah. There's, my friend and I were talking about this the other day. There, there are, since I was a little kid, there were songs or pieces of, some pieces of classical music as well that, like I love music I, and I'm, I don't play any instruments because I was such a lazy, undisciplined kid, I could never get over the hump, you know? Did guitar lessons, did piano lessons, but I would just get bored and say fuck it and go play, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, which is like my only regret. I've, I've been very happy with the way things turned out in my life and the experiences I've had. The only thing I regret is never having, and I, I, don't, I didn't want to be a good musician, I just want to be able to jam. I just want to be in the yeah. group and like be able to be part of that flow, you know? Mm -hmm. That's all I want. But anyway, uh, there are pieces of music that feel to me that it's not just good music, it's there's some sort of magical component to it. There's something about it that things click into place in a way that sort of, it's a portal to another dimension or something. Mm -hmm. And um, one song that affects me that way is called Strawberry Letter 29, I think it is, by oh. the Brothers Johnson. I heard that. I'll play it for you later. Um, it's it's just this very groovy, I think it's 70s, early 70s. It's a cover, actually. The Brothers Johnson were covering um, another version. But it's, I first heard it coming through my grandfather's AM radio when we were visiting. I was like eight years old, so it must be late 60s. Big and free. 
Uh, and it just struck me like that song, there's something about that. There, there's something going on there. Anyway, but I thought it was just me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then years later, you ever see a TV show called Six Feet Under? I never watched it. I do remember seeing commercials. So it was Alan Ball wrote it, um, who later wrote uh, American Beauty, the mm -hmm. great film. Um, anyways, very interesting f uh, TV show. I think it ran five or six seasons. And the ultimate, the sort of like pivotal moment when the main character dies, because the, the show's all about death. It's a mm -hmm. family that runs a funeral home. Mm -hmm. And so every episode's about somebody's death and how that affects things. But anyway, there's this incredible moment, and I encourage people listening to this to uh, check out on YouTube, just um, Google or search on YouTube, Nate's death six feet under. Mm -hmm. And there's the scene where the, the, he's in a hospital bed, he's had a brain aneurysm, and his brother's there with him, and essentially he dies. And as he dies, he has he goes into a dream mm -hmm. and the dream is him and his brother in a different reality and their father's there who had died years earlier and this whole thing and through this dream sequence which is the most important moment in six seasons of this tv show the background music is strawberry letter 29 mm -hmm. and it's like ah, i'm not the only one someone else yeah. has felt that that song is somewhere on the border between here and some somewhere else. Spoilers. Yeah. That was spoilers. Spoilers? Six seasons worth of spoilers right there. <laughs> hey, the show's been over for <laughs> ten years. Um, Fuck it. Have you seen yeah. the, uh, the 21st century version of Battlestar Galactica? No. no. Um, there's a section towards the end of the series where they discover the music. It's the music. The music. Um, and Bear McCreary wrote the soundtrack for Battlestar Galactica. He also does uh, The Walking Dead and, mm. and a few other shows. But the melody that he came up with for the music mm. is actually just this really earwormy thing that has stuck in my head since I saw that. Um, and I guess more spoilers. Part of the idea of, of this the music is that uh, as civilizations rise and fall, like this one melody is common to all of them. It's like the music that holds the universe together or, or something like uh, that. Yeah. Um, but it just, it's... Well, I mean, we're not, we're, we're talking out our asses here, but it's like, you know, there is the music of the spheres. There, there is this sense like uh, Pythagoras, the ancient Greek philosopher, believed that the mathematical symmetry which he found in music, like the way you pluck a string and, and the, the waves mm -hmm. on the string and the, the periods between the wavelengths, and he found this to be the, the most central mystery of existence, mm. you know, that underlay everything from, you know, the creation of life to the movement of the, the heavenly bodies to the creation of music. I mean, it was all, that was the unifying... <laughs> force there yeah yeah all right i don't know if i feel like music is the mystery holding everything together well but. i was don't you music i was thinking this the other day music because driving in the van there's a lot of time yeah. to just think you know yeah. um i was thinking music is what consciousness sounds like human huh. consciousness because we are the only animals that really make music we can say, you know, birds, 
chirp and do their do 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 do. They do melodies, but they don't have it, you know. There's not this sort of variation and and the and music is uniquely human. And I don't know if I agree. Yeah. I don't know if I disagree. Yeah. I'm. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm in the I mean, like, gray knows? zone of yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Gray zone's a good um, Because place I'm to thinking me. about whales, and I feel like we've yeah. documented whales sort of iterating on their song over time. That's true, and there's variation on, uh, and each each whale has a different signature. I don't know if melody is the word or. I don't know what what would a you personal call personal ditty. I don't yeah, know personal ditty. <laughs> um, P ditty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so music music is uniquely mysterious and strange. What you mentioned, there are four pieces of music that hit you in the gut. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you? Um, another one is a song called "Waiting for the End" by Linkin Park. Hmm. Um, there's a part right before the bridge where the lyrics are uh, something like. The hardest part of ending is starting again. Hmm. And just the way the song has built up both musically and lyrically to that moment, and then that lyric happens, and then it just kind of drops into this big hmm. bridge thing. That one always punches me in the chest as well. Um, and it's interesting, like, I've been, a, Linkin Park has been my favorite band for 17 years. Hmm. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with their career, but. In the year 2000 to say 2005, six ish, it was really cool to like Linkin Park. Mm. Um, and then they, it became kind of silly for a lot of people because their their music is, especially their older stuff, it's pretty angsty and mm. a lot of like yelling and, and screaming. And I found that cathartic to listen to, and it was sort of instrumental in my uh, rebellion against my parents as a teen. Um, but their their lead singer uh, killed himself just like oh, two weeks just ago. Just recently, yeah. Um, and it's made listening to all of their music really different. Like it, it couches everything in a different sort of context for me. Right. Um, people would make fun of the lyrics uh, as being like just so over the top, angsty, mm. and seeing how the lead singer struggled with depression and then ultimately killed himself, it gives all of the lyrics a, a weird sort of legitimacy to me. Like, he wasn't just making shit up to sound angry. Right. Like, he, he felt that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. A sort of retroactive legitimacy. The, the, the last album that they came out with, it was just, I don't know, a, a couple months ago that it came out. Um, there was a song on it called One More Light uh, that the band wrote about the death of a friend of theirs. Um, but now that Chester killed himself, listening to that song, it really just sounds like he's singing about himself after mm. his own death. Yeah. It's interesting to in light of this and also what you said about the song that builds up and then you know sort of uh, drops into another uh, kind of power that really hits you I wonder to what extent the musicians are conscious of these things because mm -hmm. you know the way I feel about it is that when there is that magical component that touches me I, I feel like the musicians 
they, it's, it's surprising to them too. Like they're just making good music and then mm -hmm. something happens that it's like, holy shit, yeah, what Certainly was that? in the same way that different writers writing novels have different processes for doing what they do. Yeah. Different musicians have different ways of arriving at their final product. I know that for me, it's rare that I have any kind of melody or anything in my head before I start. I, some people are like, I have this melody and I just need to get it out. I don't know that I've ever experienced that. Mm. It's always me just sitting at the computer and dicking around until I'm like, oh, that thing that I just did randomly sounds cool. I'll keep that and then iterate and then build on it. On it yeah. uh, so it's it's sort of like wandering through a forest or something until you find something interesting and then building something around right. it. Um, so for me, whenever I've made a song that kind of makes me feel you know, like, oh, this is really special, it always feels like an accident. I stumbled mm. upon it just because I was wandering in a given direction right. and then I discovered it. I don't right. feel like even that I created it necessarily. Yeah. It's like I found it. I'm like, hey guys, look at this. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of good art is that way. It's more a process of discovery and presentation than it is creation. I've heard uh, sculptors talk that way about how sure. they expose what's already that in them. They're searching for yeah. as they chisel away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And of course, the muse, you know, people, the writers always talk about the muse, like, mm -hmm. you know, it comes through. I mean, I've only written two books at this point, but, uh, and, and I don't really like the writing process. People listen to this podcast have heard me bitch about it a lot. Um, but, because I'm more of a social person, I mm -hmm. much prefer hanging out and bullshitting the way we are now than yeah. sitting alone in a room trying to, you know. Uh -huh. um, but there are moments where, as a writer, I'm, I'm, working on something and then just some a few paragraphs will just like plop out one time somebody asked my wife about my writing process and she said chris writes the way a dog shits he gets nervous goes around in circles and then eventually he squats and it all comes out <laughs> if that's the case i've been a constipated dog for a while now yeah <laughs> She's a psychiatrist. She has deep mm -hmm. insights into the, my processes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, you're, so you you grew up. Your parents sound sound cool and interesting. And uh, did, did you have a contentious relationship with them? Or um, my parents got. I guess they didn't technically get divorced for a while after this, but they separated when I was a sophomore in high school. Cool. Uh, which I guess if you have any international listeners, uh, I was 15-ish. 15, 15 yeah. And when it happened, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, they're very different people. Do you have siblings? I have three siblings. So the story of me yeah. is that yeah. uh, uh, a woman named Cheryl meets a man named Frank at a church retreat, and uh, they think... The other is attractive, so they date for a year, and then they're like, eh, this was fun, but it's not really working out. Sorry, see ya. And then a week later, Cheryl discovers that she's pregnant. Oh, with me. really? Ah, uh, after they'd already separated. Yes, so huh. uh, both families were very Catholic, so yeah. they did the right Catholic thing and got married for the kid. Right. Uh, and they got along well enough that they decided to pop out another three kids on the way. Uh, I think my dad is a very, very religious man, oh. very spiritual, right. very Christian. And he felt like that whole thing was a sign from God that this is actually what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Hmm. Um, 
So both my parents were very loving, dedicated parents. Uh, my mom was at you know, every single soccer game, marching band thing, all, all of that. Uh, and my dad worked long hours to support the family. Um, but as I got older, I found that there's, I don't want to generalize and say that, you know, all Christians think this way, but there's an idea in at least the sect of Christianity that I was a part of that searching for more answers outside of what are contained within this book is bad. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Don't ask right. questions. Right. And especially as I left high school, I was less influenced by, by what my dad especially thought. I discovered the internet, which is a place where you mm -hmm. know people exchange all kinds of ideas and you yeah. are, are forced to confront things that you've never thought of before. Were you in a Catholic uh, school? I wasn't in Catholic school. I had to do something called CCD. I don't know what that stands for, but it's like every Wednesday you go to someone's house and they, you know, help mm. teach you the faith more over time. Um, but I, I began to question Christianity. And actually, the reason that I was listening to your talk with uh, Peter. Peter was that his first Zeitgeist film was a pretty major turning point for me in mm. my my turn towards skepticism. Mm. And it's not that I necessarily believe everything that's contained within that Zeitgeist film. Sure. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of a lot of it, but it, it, at least it got me asking questions that I wasn't really comfortable asking prior to that. Right. Um, and that set me on a path where um, I, I went from being very Catholic to being sort of a non-denominational Christian, to being what I would call an agnostic theist, to eventually where I feel I sit now as an agnostic atheist. Hmm. How do you define agnostic? I, I've had some uh, atheist sort of activists on the mm -hmm. program, and uh, they've confused me with their definitions. <laughs> I, so a lot of people yeah. use... Um, the word agnostic as sort of a middle ground between being Christian, for example, and being atheist. Right. Like, it's, it's a Isn't middle it ground. just like, I don't know? I, that's what I've yeah, taken it so to mean. Like, I, instead, I don't claim to know if, one If you way can or the imagine a, a, a two by two grid, yeah. and on the left side, your y axis, you've got uh, gnostic and agnostic, and then on your x axis, you have theist and atheist. Mm. That's kind of how I think about it. So you right. can either be a theist or an atheist, believe that there is a god or gods uh, or not, and then your Gnosticism or agnosticism just defines to what degree you are sure about that. Right. Um, so I feel like there's probably no god. I have not seen anything that leads me to believe right. that there is, but I would stop just shy of saying I am absolutely sure right. because just my, the nature of who I've become is that unless there is absolute proof, I won't commit to a thing. Right, right. Um, so I would consider Christians to be Gnostic theists right. because they know with 100% certainty that Jesus died for their sins. Do you think they do? Do you think? You know, I the the older I get, the more I think that declarations of certainty are actually 
cries of <laughs> doubt and fear. I don't know. Because I, I align what you just said, like how you're very skeptical and you, unless mm -hmm. there's, I, I, one of my favorite quotes is, um, honor those who seek the truth, fear those who claim to have found it, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I see a politician say, you know, those homosexuals are ruining the planet, I'm like, that guy is sucking dick in a truck stop. No <laughs> doubt. He's snorting coke off somebody's ass. You know, it's like anytime I see people like so fucking sure of themselves, yeah. it's just like that's, you know, how, how did I go through so much life not knowing that that is the opposite of what he's pretending it is, you know? I think of, um, you know, Richard Dawkins. Sure. I would say that he is, he is that convicted about atheism. In in the same way that people are are that sure about theism. Right. Exactly. But I don't see his ranting and raving as a cry for help necessarily. Um, I do. <laughs> and I actually write about this a fair bit in my next book. Um, yeah, yeah. You have a PhD, so I'm a doctor. I, I you assume can trust me. that yeah. you know more about this than I do. <laughs> and I've met Richard twice, actually. Um, I had breakfast with him. This is one of those things yeah. I was talking about. How I think about the way that I feel now versus uh -huh. the way that I felt as a younger person. Right. Uh, and I can tell that I've changed because in after I discovered that I'm probably not Christian, and I you know f discovered atheism. I, I became more like a person in Richard Dawkins's genre of atheist, where I was like, oh, I've discovered the truth. Right. Hey, everybody, right. this is the truth. You should know this truth or you're stupid. Right. Uh, and I still admire Richard Dawkins's ability. He's just so quick. Whenever I watch uh, debates between mm. him and some kind of creationist or something. He just like is so good at immediately eviscerating any argument that they have. But the problem is, oh, sorry, go ahead, finish your I point. I think the problem yeah. is that he's a bit of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> took the words right, took the dick right out of my mouth. Um, and, and <laughs> he's a Richard. As I've gotten older, I, <laughs> I've come to admire less people that I think are smart or talented yeah. and more just admire people that I think are kind. Yeah, yeah. That's... And I don't know here, if here. I'm just projecting, but it seems like as Richard Dawkins is getting older, he's getting more angry. <laughs> yeah. I, I was at an event with him in Mexico, in Pueblo, Mexico, called uh, Ciudad de las Ideas city of ideas mm -hmm. it's kind of like a ted thing yeah you know, it's a mexican ted thing and uh he was there i i was there with a, a lot of really interesting scientists helen fisher and david buss these are evolutionary scientists um robert sapolsky great crowd of people there anyway richard the sort of main event was richard dawkins debating deepak chopra mm -hmm. okay and so I was sitting there with, in the like VIP section with all mm -hmm. these scientists. And they were just so disgusted with Deepak Chopra's bullshit. You know, his like quantum this and quantum that. And, you know, uh -huh. he's just blah, blah, blah. But, I, you know, so I was sort of surrounded by these scientists who were totally with Richard Dawkins. And, but I could feel the greater audience was with Deepak Chopra. 
And watching it, I realized that a lot of the audience didn't speak English, so they were listening to a simultaneous interpretation in a headphones, mm. right? So what they were getting was the body language. And the body language was that Deepak Chopra was friendly and laughing and had his legs open and his arms open and he was smiling when Richard was talking yeah. and Richard was just this scowling, <laughs> angry old yeah. man, you know? Uh -huh. And it, it, exactly the point that you made is like, you know, and then the next day at breakfast he was pissing and moaning and bitching at this and that. And it's like, dude, you're one of the most famous scientists in the world. Why don't you shut the fuck up and enjoy your <laughs> breakfast, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, come on, you're not going to resolve. And the thing about, you know, and you alluded to this, the certainty of a lot of atheists is just as toxic as the certainty of the, you know, what's it called, the American Taliban, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's the certainty that's the problem. It's not whatever the belief structure is. Yeah, so when it comes to people like Richard Dawkins, I would aspire to... <clears throat> to have a mind that is as critical thinking and quick as them, but to wield it with significantly more grace. Right, right. Well, yeah, I certainly agree with that. So we were, wait, the story of you. Did we finish the story of you? Oh, you asked me about my parents. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, let me interrupt you again, because this is what I do. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, do you think, and this is something I've thought a lot about in life because both my parents were raised Catholic, mm -hmm. quite serious Catholics through university. Mm -hmm. And in university, sort of when they met each other, they had a crisis of faith and mm -hmm. left the church. And I was raised with, you know, if you want to go to church, you can, but, you know, we'll take you in, but we're not going, yeah. you know. And uh, my sister actually went to church for years. I didn't. Um, but... People often say that if you're raised in a religious tradition, your psyche forms around, like they say, when God is removed, there's a God-shaped hole sort of in your psyche, mm. you know, that you have a religious structure to the way you I can think. certainly see that, I have said before that I feel like I live my life uh, as uh, how did I phrase it? I'm a liberal who lives like a conservative. Hmm. Um, or at least like conservatives might like other people to think that they live. In that, like, <laughs> I don't drink alcohol. Uh -huh. um, I've never done drugs. I've never been high. Really? Um, so in that sense, like, I'm just, you know, I'm a little boy sitting in right. my room. I, you know, I play some video games. Right. Um, I've not done anything that's, like, stereotypically... Uh, liberal, hippie, crazy, right. druggy stuff. So w why is it, are you... Initially it was because growing up under my parents' influence, especially my dad, like that was bad. It was mm. just bad. Um, and then I, over time, transitioned from like, if you want to do LSD, I don't care. Sure, it just doesn't really interest me. Um, How? Let me push back on that. How okay. can it not interest you? I think, uh, and certainly, I'm I'm always open to having my worldview pushed back against because right. like, how else does anybody learn anything? Right. Um, but 
if, at least if we look at look at it through the lens of being drunk. I, I've never been drunk, and the idea kind of freaks me out a little bit because I really, really value my lucidity. Mm-hmm. I value my ability to understand my surroundings at all times and make intelligent, rational decisions at any moment in time. Do you dream? So, I don't really. Mm. Um, yes, you do. Everyone I mean, dreams. I know everybody dreams. Yeah. It's, it's very rare that I remember them. a dream yeah. when I wake up. Yeah. Um, my experience with sleep is generally I'm awake and then all of a sudden I'm waking up. Right. I, I don't experience sleep like some people seem to based right. on what we've talked about. Right. Um, but as a result of, of really liking being lucid, the idea of making myself drunk or high to where I would have a different understanding of my surroundings or not any understanding at all, it doesn't sound comfortable to me. Yeah. The thing, and, and I'm not proselytizing at all, but for me, uh, psychedelics have been uh, an important part of my education. Mm. And I and most cultures that have had access to them hold them to be something totally different from mm-hmm. inebriance. You know. Certainly, uh, I read the Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs, mm. uh, and they talk about how he credited a lot of his quote-unquote genius to mm. uh, having dabbled with LSD. Um, and I've got at least a couple friends who are into the microdosing right. thing. I just interviewed Jim Fadiman two mm-hmm. weeks ago, who's the guru of microdosing. Yeah. So, I would say if <clears throat> any genre of mind-altering substance interests me, it would be that one. I just I don't feel anywhere close to yeah. reaching the point where I'm like, okay, I'll try that. What about ayahuasca? Have you heard I don't about know what that? that is. It's um. It's a very interesting uh, tea, essentially, that's made from two different plants that grow in the Amazon. Mm. It's been used for who knows how long <clears throat> by various uh, tribes in the Amazon, and now it's become sort of a popular thing with, um, you know, sort of self-discovery types, yogi, you know, who when they fly down to Peru and they do it, but there are circles of people in California and Colorado, all over the place. So there's mm-hmm. probably someone here in Missoula who does ayahuasca Wouldn't ceremonies. Be surprised. Yeah, it's um, it's a hallucinogen. It's very interesting because the one plant, it's it's the um, the bark of a vine mm-hmm. uh, that has a well, the, and then there are leaves of a shrub. And neither one of these plants has any other known medicinal use or food, nutritional, they're not edible. Mm -hmm. So no one knows how Indians first figured out that if you strip the bark off this thing and you take the leaves from this bush and you put them together and you boil them for 12 hours and drink it, you'll trip your face off, right? (laughs) Totally weird. And they have to be together because the um, psychoactive molecules are in the leaves, but there's an enzyme in your stomach that just totally neutralizes them. Mm. But the bark of the vine has what's called an MAO inhibitor. Binds. Well, it blocks the enzyme and allows the other thing to go through the into the bloodstream. So it's, and that's a process that wasn't figured out by uh, pharmacology until the 1970s, I believe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's not a party drug. It's something that's used for, 
Um, ayahuasca is very interesting because it something like LSD or psilocybin mushrooms can just be fun and uh, sort of non-directed. Sure. Like if you <clears throat> if you decide, <clears throat> excuse me, if you decide to get serious about it and you say I'm going to do an LSD session where I'm going to confront my fear of death or I'm going to like you know think about whatever it is that that bothers you. Um, then it can be very powerful and useful. What ayahuasca does is it sort of forces you to look at mm -hmm. what your issue is. So most, a lot of people will say like one evening with ayahuasca is like 10 years of therapy because you just like face your monsters. You know, it's very I think interesting. Part of my <clears throat> non-interest in, in stuff like that is related to that I am pretty healthy i think both physically and mentally mm. and i'm just like always kind of just mellow um i don't get sad very often and i've been blessed with this ability to uh if i start feeling sad i can recognize that i'm feeling sad and just kind of be like i don't want to be sad and i can just kind of deal with the feelings right mm. then and there um and i've talked to other friends who you know start the like why don't you drink conversation and in a lot of cases uh, people feel like their brain is always going at a million miles an hour and so having a drink after work it helps you know slow down and relax and right. I feel like man I'm already there like I'm already slowed down and relaxed mm. so I can understand how people with with different life experiences different brains might feel more interested in in that to bring them to a different place but I just I really like where my brain is at yeah 99% of the time yeah yeah to me I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying, but to me it sounds like someone saying, I really like America. Why would I ever go on vacation anywhere else? Sure, yeah. That's like, okay, that's fine. It makes sense. But for me, it's it's been so valuable. The, the You know Joseph Campbell? You ever read him? The mythologist? That the sounds familiar. Hero with a Thousand Faces was his most famous book or the power of myth he did the that series one yeah this. yeah with bill moyers really good anyway he he was a mythologist he studied mm -hmm. myths around the world and he talks about the process of detribalization as being an important uh process in in education where we where you recognize that you are from a tribe that your reality is just one interpretation of reality, right? Mm -hmm. Which obviously is a process that you've gone through. You were detribalized from whatever Christian sect you grew up in, and mm -hmm. you sort of said, oh, that's just the way they look at reality, yeah. and I'm going to step away from that. And so you're in the same process anyway. Some people use hallucinogens, some people use travel, some people use... I think using the your travel analogy for, like, uh, right now, I've I've only been to America. I've never experienced other countries that you know, are representative of different hallucinogens or, or drugs or whatnot. I feel like, at least the way that I travel, when I do travel, I I, I have to be ready for whatever. I'm, I'm kind of like opening up my life to, okay, TSA and Delta and <laughs> government of other country. Uh, whatever yeah. happens, happens. And right. I just kind of go into a Zen mode and right. I've cleared my schedule of yeah. other stuff. That's and true. I feel like if I were to ever start dabbling in any kind of 
drug like that, I would have to do a similar thing with my life. You because would. like mm. right now, I already don't sleep enough because there's so much stuff going on. Right. I would feel reluctant to add another variable. I have no idea how I'm going to react to you any of these drugs. You might get stuck in Paris. Um, exactly. <laughs> the Paris of <laughs> um, the mind. So I don't, <laughs> the idea of just, Adding something right now is a little bit scary. So what are you doing now? We we ne we haven't gotten to who the hell you are. Oh, should I go back to the uh, parents thing now? <laughs> no, but you're so you're a, a vlogger. Yeah. Right. So we're in your studio right now. I so guess right this now is we're where you vlog on the the set of one of the shows we make called Kate Tectonics, which is a geology educational show. Mm. Um, we have, we've uploaded two episodes so far, and the third episode is rendering on that computer right now. Cool. Um, geology is... No, no, you got the rock? Oh, yeah. So, oh, because of who, geology? Yeah, the people the who rock. can't see what we're on That's the set, we have pictures funny. over here. That's I guess even, funny. I'm looking at the screen right now, even people who are watching can't see those pictures. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, <laughs> the rock himself uh -huh. on the wall over there. It's a black and white picture. The, wh the whole cabin here is supposed to be set in 1889, mm. which is the year that Montana entered the Union. Um, and that's uh, Benjamin Harrison, the guy who was uh, president of the United States in that year. Um, so the whole show, it's like we do this sort of purposefully anachronistic thing where the cabin here is set in 1889, but the host, Caitlin, sits here with her laptop. Um, and there's a green screen out the window here so that we can make the cabin look like it's actually in the woods. Or the episode that's rendering right now, uh, she launches her cabin into space. So we have a drone shot to, like, flying up and it looks oh, like the cabin's cool. flying up. And uh, the reason that we did this geology show specifically was the state of Montana gives money to production companies if they are interested in the project. Um, and we felt like using Montana as a backdrop for studying geology uh, was both interesting in that geology isn't regarded as a super sexy science. Like a lot of people are into chemistry or mm. biology or physics, but geology is a little bit more neglected. Um, and we thought the state would be interested in us shooting beautiful imagery of everything Montana has to offer. You know who was a big geologist? People don't know this. Charles Darwin. Yeah. Uh, in, I think, our second episode, we talk about the history of geology mm. and how... Um, it was Darwin's understanding of geology that helped him right. develop his theory of evolution, uh, being able to see that there are you know, stratifications in, in the ground yeah. and these bones are only found in this layer, right. which is the same as that layer on that continent over there. How did that happen? Right. And just the amplification of the time scales. Mm -hmm. You know, most people were thinking in terms of five, six, seven thousand years. And yeah. he was the first one who was going, no, I think we're talking about millions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is I love geology. I mean, I don't know much about it, but it's one of the things like I don't go through life very often thinking, damn, I wish I knew more about chemistry. But I often will, you know, be in a place and say, damn, yeah, I wish I, I knew geology what was underpins happening there. a lot more than people generally give it credit for. Literally everything in this room around us uh, either came out of the ground or was made with something that came out of the ground. Right. And so geology is how we harnessed tools to, there's metal stands holding that, that metal had to come out of the ground. Uh, you know, the wood around us 
yeah. grew on a tree that was related to whatever yeah. ecology it And just being in. able to look at the plant, look at the landscape and know like, oh, look, that mountain was forced up by, you know, volcanic up, uplift here and this was eroded. With all that talk of climate change right now, like mm -hmm. how, how can we possibly understand our environment and the trajectory it's on without right. understanding how the planet works? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, t take me through the process of you being a musician, high school, you get out of high school, like how do you become a C-list uh, internet celebrity? How does that happen? So I guess I'll, let's go back to the parents though. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I start becoming atheist. My relationship with my father becomes slightly more estranged. Um, all four of us kids in my family grew up to be atheists and my dad, is he's very religious and so I think to a certain extent he probably feels like he failed as a father because it was his duty given to him by God to raise four God-fearing children uh, and none of us became that. Uh, I don't have a bad relationship with my father but it's much more like that of a friend that I see once or twice a year and that of a friend who has a very different political view than you, so you just like don't ever broach that topic when you're at dinner. You um, seem like a very respectful person, though. I, I hope he recognizes, like what we said earlier, you said you live the way, conser you're a liberal who lives the way conservatives, you know, want people to think of it. I think you seem like a very decent sort of. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm, I, um, like I, my best buddy's religious, right? Yeah. He's my best friend, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, we grew up together, and I'm so, like he doesn't do any drugs, doesn't drink, you know, he's raised his kids in a religious tradition. And I'm like from another world, but yeah. within who he is, like there's a lot to respect there. And I, I hope your father recognizes that. I think of it in sort of the same way that I feel like if there is a God and he looks at the way that I live my life and decides to send me to hell for that, like, that's really shitty. Yeah, well, then that's um, a shitty God. So I, I, th I imagine that my dad can look at the person that I am now and be like, oh, I, I succeeded in raising someone who is uh, thoughtful and he th thinks critically and generally tries to help people around him. Right. Uh, so... The God thing's kind of immaterial. If you've succeeded in raising a kid like that, it doesn't it, it, really I mean, matter. From the point of view of someone who is not religious yeah. or, or doesn't believe in God. Yeah. Yeah, but I can also understand, having been on the other side of the fence, that like, to them, the God thing is not immaterial. Yeah. Um, I had a woman on this podcast who was raised as a Mormon, and she, uh, you know, everybody in her life was Mormon mm -hmm. and true believer. And she had what we would call a psychotic episode, essentially, mm -hmm. where she heard the voice of God. And she broke down and was laughing and crying and couldn't drive, had to pull the car over and just had mm -hmm. this event. And I said, what, what was happening in that moment? Do you, do you remember what was happening? She said, I heard God speak to me. Hmm. And I said, what did he say? She said, he said, religion is bullshit. <laughs> and that's exactly what God would say if yeah. there is a God. Like, I don't mean, listen to those people. It's kind of a cliche to say, but people talk about it all the time. Like, if Jesus actually, if the second coming happens and Jesus walks up, everybody's going to be like, 
who the fuck are you, yeah. dude? Go away. Yeah, and um, he'd be like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> ripping all these people off. Anyway, I interrupted you again. So, so. Uh, I'm in college. I'm doing film school stuff. My relationship with my dad is becoming uh, less like father-son and more just like two adult males who know each other. Um, and my mom, was she was diagnosed with breast cancer while I was still in high school, but it had been like this ongoing process of she's got the cancer, she goes through treatment, she doesn't have cancer anymore. It shows up again, she goes through treatment, she doesn't have cancer anymore. Um, but in 2008, I think, uh, they found that it had come back and it had spread to her brain. She had brain tumors. And they were basically like, there is nothing we can do except try to make the rest of your life as comfortable as possible. Um, so I was in film school at the time, and I don't know if you have the same sort of relationship with school, but when I was in film school, I didn't feel like I was getting a creative outlet anywhere. Mm. Even though I was going to school for film, I still had this thirst to like make film stuff. Mm. So that's when I started a YouTube channel. It was 2007. Um, and that was my creative outlet while I was in school. My mom got diagnosed in 2008, so I dropped out of film school and moved back home to take care of my mom as she was... Uh, the reason that she discovered that she had anything wrong was she was starting to lose the ability to swallow. It was getting mm -hmm. hard for her to swallow, and it turns out that the tumor was pressing on the part of the brain that affects throat muscles. Um, so eventually she had a feeding tube, and so three times a day had to pour this like insure mix mm -hmm. into her tube. Um, and then during that time that I was home, I put a lot of effort into my YouTube channel. Uh, my mom died in June, June 27th of 2009, and at that point, the YouTube thing had started taking off, so rather than going back to film school, I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, and... That caused me to start meeting other people in the YouTube community, one of which was a guy named Charlie McDonnell, who is a YouTuber based in London. We became friends. He had a band. He asked His band asked me to go produce their album, which is why I ended up flying to England. Mm. Uh, and then we as a band, I ended up like kind of getting included in the band. Um, I guess if anyone wants to go listen to that, uh, the album I produced is called Still Got Legs by Chameleon Circuit. Um, but in the recording process, we decided to just take a weekend holiday to Paris. That's when I got stuck. Uh, we started this online petition to like get Michael Aranda out of France. Um, and that's eventually how I got let back into the UK. Is we got this really? thing with 60,000 signatures and my friends based in the UK took it to their local MP, which is like their version of a house representative or a senator or yeah. something, uh, and said, look, tens of thousands of people are seeing this situation on the internet the Olympics are happening next year in London. Is this what you want the world to see before <laughs> everyone's going to be trying to come into this country? Yeah. Uh, and so eventually the, the government of the UK was kind of like, fine, he can come back in for seven days just oh, to get his stuff on. and then go home. Why are they being such pricks? And you're on an American passport. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. So the publicity surrounding this got Red Bull's attention. Oh. And Red Bull paid to fly the rest of the band to Paris and put them up in an apartment. And so we finished the album in that apartment in Paris. Uh, and then 
back in the UK, during my seven-day window, they held a listening party for all of our UK-based fans. So a bunch of people came down. We played the album for them for the first time. It was a good time, and then I flew home. Um, but right when I got home, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that I had made in the UK who was originally from Vancouver, Canada, uh, and she was telling me about how she had this friend who discovered uh, that she, this is going to get convoluted. She discovered, the friend discovered that the girl I was talking to had been hanging out with me. Uh-huh. Friend stated that she was very jealous. So this girl relayed to me, hey, my friend is really jealous that I was getting to hang out with you. Uh, and at that point, I had gotten some kind of C-list fame, and so it wasn't that uncommon for people to be like, oh, cool. So I didn't really think anything of it. And then maybe half an hour later in the conversation, I was like, oh, that friend you were telling me about, is she cute? Uh, and the response was, she's a babe. So then uh, I got uh, hooked up with this girl named Samantha, and we ended up dating for like two years, and so I moved to Vancouver, Canada mm. uh, f- for this girl. Um, while I was in Vancouver, Canada, Hank Green's brother, John Green, released a book called The Fault in Our Stars that later became a movie. Oh, right. Uh, and they were doing a book tour right. across North America supporting The Fault in Our Stars. And the last stop was in Vancouver, Canada, where I happened to be living. Hank and I knew each other because we had both been YouTubers for a while. Uh, and so I was hanging out with them backstage at this book signing event thing. Uh, and he just sort of casually said, hey, I'm starting up a production studio in Missoula, Montana. Do you want to come work for me? And at that time, I was looking for something new, kind of. So mm. I was like, OK. So in 2012, I moved here to Missoula. Uh, I worked with Samantha, or she stayed. She stayed in Vancouver. Uh, we did the long distance relationship thing for a while after that, mm. um, but eventually we parted ways. Uh, still on pretty good terms. Uh, I'm still on good terms with pretty much everyone that I've dated. Which that's like, if there's one thing that I like to brag about, it's that my ex girlfriends. Yeah in general don't hate me. There might be one in there that still doesn't want to talk to me, but uh, in general, good reviews. Uh, Anyway, um, I worked at Hank's company, which was then called EcoGeek. They changed its name to Complexly recently uh, for five years. And then during that time, I started sort of fantasizing about owning my own production company. And uh, I think it was April of this year, I made the switch full time to running my own production company here. Mm. Uh, It's just down the street from where Complexly is, and I still contract with them to host a show called SciShow for them, and I'm also going to be a host on a show called Crash Course, uh, Crash Course Film Criticism, uh, that we're shooting in a few months, I believe. Uh, And they also contract with my company to do uh, audio post-production stuff. So... And it's all YouTube. You're... So far, yes. Right. Are you thinking um, of getting into Netflix and Amazon and all that? or I haven't thought about that stuff specifically. Part of what my company is doing here is we've started to pivot a little bit to rather than only producing our own content to put up on YouTube, we are taking clients, mostly local businesses, to help them develop uh, both their web presence and any online Facebook, Instagram type video ads Hmm. for them. So we're doing more business to business service now. And that's mostly 
to pay the bills because like I have this daily vlog project called what I'm doing right now right uh, and it doesn't make money right but I really really love it like but my favorite thing right now is my daily vlog daily ish vlog it's like my journal because right. I don't I don't journal at all right. I just I document everything yeah. and then I edit it together with music and whatnot and there's a following of people that that like to watch what I'm doing and I'm lucky enough that I get to lead a life that is a little bit out of the ordinary and being able to share that with people is really rewarding yeah. uh, especially because it is those people's support over all these years that has allowed me to have this kind of exactly. weird life where I can travel and have experiences that most people don't get to um, but it's it's a it's entirely a passion project right it, it makes like two hundred dollars a month and the people who work here I employ to help me mostly work on that project <laughs> uh, so the monthly cost of this studio yeah. right now is somewhere in the neighborhood of nine thousand dollars a month right and you know the the, the vlog itself it's is bringing in like cut, two right? or three hundred dollars yeah. a month yeah so yeah i hear you i this this podcast is my passion project um and i did a thing i was you know i had dads the typical squarespace and you know whatever mm -hmm. that everybody has and um one day i was reading an ad i think it was for underwear it was like this mm -hmm. some fancy underwear and uh <clears throat> i realized like I spend most, you know, when I rant, I rant about anti-consumerism and mm -hmm. don't get caught in the rat race, don't get, don't get that hook in your mouth, you'll never get out, and you know, it's all about experience. Yeah. And then here I am selling $25, you know, pairs of underwear. And so I just said, oh, fuck it, I can't do it anymore. Uh, and I said to my audience, like, look, I can't do these ads anymore. Yeah. And, you know, if you like the podcast, please support it. So I have a Patreon mm -hmm. uh, thing. and. Uh, and between that and, and an Amazon affiliate link and, and just donations, I ended up getting more support financially just directly from the audience than I was getting in ads. I guess I, I feel like I should mention, just to be clear, that because uh, I also do have a Patreon mm. uh, and people are supporting me there in the neighborhood of, I think, just under $2,000 a month. So yeah. saying that the vlog makes... $300 right. is a little bit unfair. There yeah. is this this huge community of people who are supporting yeah. what I'm doing. And uh, that that's so cool. Yeah. And that, that's something about, I, I uh, piss on modernity a lot, but that's one of the cool things. I mean, this to be able to do what you do or what I'm doing, have that direct relationship with an audience with yeah. absolutely nobody in between. It's pretty incredible. It's common for people to ask you know, what would you be doing if you weren't doing the thing you're doing right now? And like, if the internet didn't exist in the form that it does right now, I have no idea. Right. I know that I am currently a creative person. I enjoy being creative and making things. But I don't know how much of that love is not only enabled by the internet, but fostered mm. that. Like, I, I don't know how much came from the fact that I had this... Yeah. internet access and my yeah. exposure to all the ideas growing up yeah. maybe directed me this way if that didn't exist I, maybe I'd be a banker right now I don't know yeah yeah it's kind of impossible to even contemplate mm -hmm. I mean I can because I grew up without the internet right. you know but but for I mean this gets us back to where we started with somebody who grew up in that environment it's 
Yeah, it's it's yeah. impossible to even imagine. Listen, I know you're busy and you got up early to come in and do this with me, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, is there I, anything that you want to What time? 10.30? We've been at it for uh, an hour and 10 minutes here. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess if, if people are interested in following my daily vlog, uh, that's at youtube.com slash what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm a host on SciShow, which is one of the more popular uh, science education shows on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash SciShow. That's SCI Science Show, SciShow. S, what is it? SCI Show. SCI, Sci. What, what's considered a, a legit audience number for a YouTube program? I don't know. When I first started my YouTube channel, I remember having 20 subscribers and being like, hey, that's like more than just my friends. That's really cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there was a guy on YouTube named Mike Lee who I had uploaded a video of myself going to the store and buying a bunch of baby food and like taste testing all the baby food. Uh, and he thought that it was funny, so he went and did his own version of it and said, hey, I got this idea from this other guy, go check him out. And so uh, in one night, I remember going from 20 subscribers to 200 subscribers. And I was just over the moon that 200 people yeah. are watching the things yeah. that I'm putting on yeah. the internet. Uh, that's like, when you think of those stadium-sized classrooms <laughs> at a university, that's how many people are sitting there staring yeah. at me as yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, I think it was by Thanksgiving the following year, I was at 2,000 subscribers. That's just, that's 10 times the number of people that were sitting in that auditorium in my head. Yeah. That's crazy. And then, um, after I met Charlie McDonald, who was popular in the UK, and I was in his videos, I ballooned up to 250,000 subscribers, and that was just mind-blowing to me. But it's really easy to get jaded. Yeah. And so, like, hitting 250,000 subscribers was back in 2009, 10-ish. Um, and so now that doesn't seem like as many. Mm. It's really, com but I forget the number, but there are something like thousands of YouTube channels that have over 1 million subscribers now. That's so the number 1 million sounds really big, yeah. but it is not that uncommon for a channel to have that many subscribers. Right. And it's, it's kind of this, this duality of being that successful is no longer unheard of, but it's also getting harder to become that successful because when I, when I started on YouTube, it was a new thing. There weren't a lot of people already doing it, so you could like, draw people to that platform with the cool, unique thing that you were doing. Now it's just so saturated mm. that to get anyone to watch your content, you basically have to steal those eyeballs from something else. Mm. They've got a certain amount of time to spend consuming entertainment, and there is more stuff. They're not coming into it still. With podcasts, I think they are. It's in an earlier stage. Mm. People are still discovering podcasts. Yeah. So you don't need to be pulling them from another audience. There are new people coming into it. Yeah. Um, so right now the, the struggle is like how do I keep growing my audience? What do I have to do? Because in the same way that you feel weird about advertising, there's a lot of stereotypical things that YouTubers do to like grow their audience that mm. make me feel kind of weird. Like at the end of videos, people being like, hey guys, don't forget to like and comment and subscribe. That just feels so contrived to me. So I don't usually say anything like that. 
And I think as a result, because I'm not playing the game mm. the same way everybody else is, it's harder for me to be successful. How do I set myself <laughs> apart? I don't like the, yeah. the, the clickbait uh, titles, like people put their titles in all caps. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the thumbnails always have the biggest breasts they can find sure. that don't really relate to what the video is about. Mm. I always like the thumbnail to be from the video right. and give the title should uh, be interesting, but also still be related to the video without yeah. being totally misleading. So without playing that game, I feel like it's more of an uphill battle, but yeah. I, I at least can sleep better at night. And also, I think, I don't know to what extent this is true for your what you're doing, but for me with the podcast, I feel that, you know, there's a, the quantity versus quality thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd rather have 50,000 people listening to this podcast who are really engaging with it and are smart, cool people Definitely. than a million people who are kind of like, you know, like, because everyone I've ever met through the podcast has been cool. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're here because they want to be here. They're not here because, you know, it's hard to put big tits on a podcast, but you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the oral equivalent For of For those big of tits. you at home listening, my breasts are huge. Oh my God, the man boobs on display um. in this cabin. I mean, I, I talk about sex a lot, so there is that, yeah. and I have porn stars on and, you know, whatever, sex workers of all sorts, but... Um, I think in yeah. general, uh, you, you attract the audience that likes the stuff you make, which seems really obvious, right. but also not at the same time. Yeah. Like if, if you put out thoughtful, quiet, deliberate content, that's the kind of people that will coagulate around that Coagulate, um, oh, good woo. use of coagulate. Um, <laughs> and if, if your YouTube channel, for example, is just a bunch of fart jokes, like, yeah. not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but there is a specific kind of audience that will form around that content. So I think I'm, yeah. I'm lucky in that the people who have decided to follow me long term are all very nice. And it's it's part of the, the stereotype of YouTube comments that it's just a shithole. People are assholes in the yeah, comments. Yeah. But the people who watch my videos and leave comments are always very nice, very thoughtful, very empathetic. Um, and if there's, if there's one thing, it, when I die and people think about who I was, the thing that I want is that I helped bring just a little bit more empathy to the world because I, I, I feel like that is a, a big crux of a lot of problems is our inability to just understand that other people have different experiences and that that is okay. Yeah. Let's end it on that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank really you. Good. Up and
that's invisible there Cause we're living at the mercy of the pain and the fear Until we get it, forget it, let it all disappear yeah. Waiting for the end to come Wishing I had strength to stand This is not what I had planned It's out of my control Thank you for hanging out. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, If you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. 
and you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at T8, no, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, ChrisRyanPhD.com, TangentiallySpeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design T shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us so be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD, and that's at suredesigntshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carseyblanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day 
to the ground. 